great future. We're talking real money. Hi, welcome to Friday. And Friday generally means another Q&A edition of Talking Real Money. Hi, everybody. I'm Don McDonald. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Appreciate it. Um, Retire Meet is over. For me, <laughs> I know you know this. If, you listen, if you've listened for any time at all, you know that when it comes to, well, life in general, I like just normal. I like it normal. Holidays, they throw the normal off. Events like Retire Meet, they throw the normal off. I'm traveling and I'm on the road and I'm outside of my studio and I don't have all my equipment and uh, things are here and there and everywhere and it's just too confusing, darn it. So I'm just thrilled to be back into the regular swing of things. Friday Q&A day. It just is. I don't know why. Probably because it rhymes, but so does Thursday. Actually, so does Wednesday and Tuesday and Monday and Sunday and Saturday Q&A day. So, never mind. That's not a good reason. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I'm back in the saddle again, and I have a bunch of questions. So, we've got a, a pretty jam-packed episode of questions for you today. So let's get started with, um, let's say, this one. Hello, my name is Siva. I am a longtime listener of your podcast and very thankful for the service you, do, you provide. want to get your opinion on non-deductible IRAs. Should one contribute into such an account, assuming you max out your 401k and you're not eligible for Roth IRA? Happy to, to listen to you further. Thanks. Bye. Hmm, non-deductible IRAs. Oh, I just, it depends on how you invest. I, no, never mind. It really doesn't. <laughs> it really doesn't. If I had extra money to invest, I would just invest it outside of the retirement plans. Because what we forget is that a long-term capital gain that is not distributed is tax deferred. So growth-oriented vehicles, index funds, or even more particularly, exchange-traded index funds, are already tax-advantaged just because of the tax deferral. And wait, there's more. If, for some strange reason, you end up in a lower bracket at retirement, well, you're going to pay even less than you would in a non-deductible IRA because the non-deductible IRA withdrawals are taxed as income, whereas the long-term capital gains coming out of an ETF are taxed as capital gains. And these days, that's at a very advantageous rate, generally for most people around 15%. So, um, no, unless you're going to do a backdoor Roth, that's the only reason that a non-deductible would make sense. And then there are a lot of qualifiers around that. If you have other IRAs and it sounds like you do, then you'd have to convert a portion of those to a Roth too and pay the taxes. So it gets more confusing. So just to keep it simple, no, I would not do a non-deductible IRA. And by the way, the questions in today's program, in today's episode, come to us via TalkingRealMoney.com on the contact form, which has a little button that allows you to record your question. 
just like this. Hi, guys. I'm calling because my spouse works for a tech company, and of course, we get RSUs, um, reserve stock units. And when they vest, of course, a portion are sold off immediately on the open market to cover income taxes. Um, but we have no choice in what those prices are eventually sold at, of course. They're sold at the open market. And invariably, uh, the cost per share or the, the cost basis reported to us is higher than what they were eventually sold on the open market for. And I'm wondering, why is it that the cost basis is not simply the amount they were able to sell on the open market? Should that not be the cost basis? And we always end up losing 1% to 3% on this deal. So if you could help me understand how the cost basis is determined on RSUs when they vest, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks. RSUs are restricted stock units. They are, in essence, gifts given to employees in shares that can't trade until a certain date in the future. And the cost basis of an RSU, of a restricted stock unit, is the value as determined by the company on the date they were deposited into your account. Now, I know from my daughter's experience with a tech company that her RSUs, when she got some of these, were valued near the, well, were valued right at the, the company's IPO price, which was the highest price the company had ever been and ever would be, at least for now, again. So therefore, she had a high value on her cost basis and her eventual sale, and she hasn't sold hers yet, if the cost stays, the price stays down, it's going to be a loss. She's going to have a loss when they sell. So that's just the way the market works. They're priced at the value on the day they were given to you, and then you take a tax loss. But remember, this was free money. So when you sell them and get this money out, you're making money. You just have a taxable loss, which is a good thing. You can use that to offset other income. So, yeah, it, you've got the cost basis is the value at the time these shares were given to you. Thank you for the call and or the question that came into TalkingRealMoney.com. And let's do our next one. Hi, Tom and Don. My name is Jake, and I'm a teacher. And so I have a 403B question. I really appreciate your advice. And I know recently you pointed out the 403B WISE site. And so a few years ago, I switched from a high-cost custodian to Fidelity. Thankfully, my school district has Fidelity as an option. And we have a limited number of funds available. So basically, I have 80% of my portfolio in a target date fund. It's the Fidelity Freedom Index 2045 IPR fund. So it's an institutional fund. I think it's not the regular Fidelity Freedom Index. Um, the ticker is FFOLX. So that is a very low-cost fund. I have 80% of my money there. Then I have the other 20%, based on your advice, in small cap funds. Now, I put it in two different funds. 10% of my portfolio is in the FCPVX. That's the Fidelity Small Cap Value Fund. I know that that fund has a little higher 
um, expenses than than we'd like to see. I think it's close to one percent. The other ten percent, because of that, the other ten percent in in small cap is just in a regular Fidelity small cap index fund. That's an FSSNX. So that one does have really low expenses, but it doesn't have the value tilt. So I'm just thinking about it and trying to decide: Would I be better off just putting? all the money in just the target date fund, all 100%, and because I don't really have a low-expense, small-cap value fund available to me? Or should I keep doing what I'm doing? Or, you know, I don't know. Um, Maybe I should put it all in just the low-cost index, but that's not a value tilt. So anyway, really looking for your input on this. I'd value your advice. Thank you. Well, at least you have fidelity. You got to give them that. They could have given you the index funds, but apparently chose not to. Because, but that's that's neither here nor there. The problem is the Fidelity Small Cap Value Actively Managed Fund, which shouldn't exist anyway. And if Fidelity wasn't so, and Vanguard is the same way at times, so greedy that they keep doing active funds, they don't just admit. They, they they need to just finally admit that these, while they make the company more money, a lot more money, they just don't stand a lot of chance of, uh, of, of recovering that fee. That's the problem. And that's why the advice I'm going to give you is get to heck out of the small cap value fund at Fidelity. Because while value has outperformed small cap growth, remember the small cap index you're in is a blend. So it's about half value and about half growth. So you still have value. You're just not over, over weighting it. And as small and overweighting as you're doing, I cannot imagine looking back at the past that you are likely to make to add 1% annually to that portion of the portfolio that you're dedicating to small cap value in this case. I I think that that in this case the fees trump the potential potential tiny little added return. You see we're playing little tiny percentages to try to get more overall more return overall and lower volatility overall. But as small as these portions are, and as expensive as they are, bear in mind, you're at 1% per year on the Fidelity Small Cap Index, which I think is just robbery, personally. Not illegal like robbery, metaphorical robbery. Um, And while the FSSNX, just the Small Cap Index, is, get this, 0.0, wait, there's another zero in there, 0.025. Whereas the small cap value is 0.99. It's ridiculously more expensive. Do I think that the 1% is going to help you? No, I don't think you're going to do that much better. You certainly haven't. So um, as a matter of fact, let's look at what the difference has been. Let's look at the, how far do these go back? Let's look at the 10-year return. And on the Fidelity small cap in our Fidelity Small Cap Index, it's 9% per year. And on the FCP V 
x, which is the small cap value. If I could type, it would be better. CPVX, the average annual return over that same period has been, yeah, it's just been about three-tenths of a percent more. So it's just not enough. I'd make the change. And then get small cap value index funds through an ETF outside of your retirement plan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the question. Take care. Now let's take yet another question that came in at TalkingRealMoney.com. Hello, Don and Tom. Love your show. Just have a question about the backdoor IRA. Um, Last year, I busted my rear end and made a lot of money on overtime and went about $2,000 over the limit to contribute to a Roth IRA. But I'd already contributed to the Roth IRA through automatic investing. So when I realized I went over the limit, I recharacterized the amount in the Roth IRA to a traditional IRA. So now that $6,000 is sitting on a traditional IRA. And my question is, can I do the backdoor Roth now and take those, and take those, that $6,000 from the uh, traditional IRA and put it back to the Roth IRA? Sorry, that's a little complicated. And my, my general question about the backdoor Roth IRA is maybe I'm missing something, but why does the government even allow income limits on the Roth IRA since anybody can do a backdoor Roth IRA? Am I missing something there? Thank you, guys. Let's start with that last part, <laughs> that last question, because I ask myself that question all the time. Why have income limits on Roth IRA contributions? when there's a perfectly legal way around it. Mm, don't know. Uh, that's answer one. Uh, answer two, the most obvious is um, the laws were written by a committee or a, the aides to a committee <laughs> or the aides to the aides to the aides of the committee. I don't know, but um, government, Another answer. However, here's the deal. One, I'm going to make a big assumption because you're a good saver and investor and you make a lot of money. You have a retirement plan at work. It just sounds like you do. Therefore, you couldn't recharacterize a Roth into a regular because you're over the income limit for a deductible IRA too. So my guess is, and I'm guessing, you just turned that Roth into a non-deductible IRA, in which case, of course, you can move your non-deductible IRA into a Roth. Thus, the stupidity of the income limits. You can, in a year, you say, "Oh, gee, I got, I want to put six thousand in a Roth. I can't. Okay, I'll put six thousand in a non-deductible IRA, and then immediately put it in a Roth. That's legal. So, yeah, do that." The only downside is if you have other deductible IRAs, regular IRAs, the deductible kind. I was doubting myself for a minute. The deductible kind. Then you have to also convert a comparable percentage of those into a Roth and pay the taxes on them. That's the downside of the back door. Otherwise, convert away and keep listening. And thank you for being there. Next. Hello, Tom and Don, or Don and Tom. I have Vanguard mutual funds in my Fidelity taxable account, which were transferred in from Vanguard. 
Fidelity does not charge a fee to redeem the funds, only to purchase new funds. It is In a recent podcast, you stated that the Vanguard Mutual Fund and its equivalent ETF had the same treatment in regards to internal capital gains treatment. It is my understanding that the mutual fund has to pay out unrealized internal capital gains to the shareholder, whereas the ETF does not. Are the unrealized internal capital gains for both the Vanguard ETF and its equivalent mutual fund treated the same? If not, am I better off transferring the Vanguard mutual funds back to Vanguard, converting to ETFs, and then transferring back to Fidelity? Thank you for everything you do. Bye. All right. I'm going to take my time with this because we've got a lot of competing issues and confusing terms that, uh, in fact, we've I think we're misunderstanding some of the terms. Let's start with the term unrealized capital gain, which is what you were asking about. If a mutual fund or an ETF has unrealized capital gains, those are gains inside the fund, they haven't sold the security, but the value of the securities has gone up, those unrealized gains are not taxable to the shareholder until the shareholder sells the funds. So across the board, unrealized gains inside a fund are tax deferred until you sell. However, there's another issue that gets confusing. That's realized capital gains. That is when a fund, even an index fund, is uh, forced to sell some securities that have made money, that have gone up in value. They realize a gain. Well, for a mutual fund, the way they are structured, the law requires that they distribute all of that gain, be they an index fund or an active fund, they distribute that gain to the shareholders. I just looked, Vanguard had some funds that last year, index funds, paid out about a 3% realized long-term capital gain. So if you have a fund and they realize a gain, you pay taxes. ETFs are structured differently. Because of the way shares are traded, they're literally swapped. They're not bought and sold. They're swapped between dealers. Because of that, an ETF does not realize capital gains. When they get rid of a stock, they're just trading. So you don't have realized capital gains along the way with an ETF. You only have a gain when you sell a capital gain. Now, you might have income. There's one other little confusing point to all this, and that is Vanguard itself. If you were to move money from a Fidelity Index Fund into an iShares ETF, choose them for an example, or even a Fidelity ETF, you would have a realized capital gain on that mutual fund, and then you would put the money into the ETF. Vanguard has set this up in a way that they are literally swapping shares from their index funds into their ETF. So if you have a Vanguard index fund and you have it held at Vanguard, you can move the money from the Vanguard fund into the comparable Vanguard ETF without experiencing a capital gain, a realized capital gain on your part. The capital gain continues to defer into the ETF. So I hope that makes sense. Now, if I had an account at Fidelity, 
in which I was going to occasionally rebalance shares and I had some Fidelity mutual funds, I would begin the process. Actually, I, I would uh, I would get start to get them converted to ETFs eventually. Other, otherwise, you might have to pay that fee, that transaction fee, to buy Vanguard funds at Fidelity, which I wouldn't want to pay. So I hope that answers the question. It is a little confusing. The terminology is confusing between realized and unrealized capital gains. But again, if you hold a security for the long haul and you don't sell it, you don't pay taxes on it except taxes on any dividends distributed. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for the question. Thank you all for being a part of the program, the podcast. It really means a lot that you're here. It means even more when you share us with friends. And please do, because we're, we've been slipping in the rankings again. Don't know why, but we're not in the top 100 anymore. So please help us get back up there in the Apple Podcast Top 100. I'm Don. Thanks so much for being a part of it. And oh, by the way, if you need a little help, more help than we can provide answering your questions here or at 855-935-TALK, spend a little time with one of our advisors. It's free. It's really easy. And there's no obligation, no sales pitch. Just go to TalkingRealMoney.com and click the Meet an Advisor button. So easy. Really incredibly easy. And also call Tom and me as we do a live show on Saturday between three and five Eastern time at 855-935-TALK, 855-935-8255. And as my voice is slowly starting to fade, I should end this. I'm Don McDonald. And even with a croaky voice, I'm talking real money. You realize that the information provided on Talking Real Money is for informational, educational, and hopefully enjoyable purposes only. Providing personalized financial planning or investing advice takes time, so please consult with a really good fee-only fiduciary investment, tax, or legal advisor. We know a good one. Investing must always involve risk. In other words, you can and probably will lose money at times. Also, as much as you want it, no one can accurately and consistently predict the future, so past performance doesn't tell you a darn thing about what the future will bring. Unlike many other programs that say something similar, Talking Real Money is not trying to get you to buy or sell any financial products or securities. Instead, the program is provided as a public service by Appella Capital, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Thanks for listening and please visit TalkingRealMoney.com for more information and disclosures. As you keep the lawyers happy.